National Association of Educational Broadcasters. The National Association of Educational Broadcasters. By the National Association of Educational Broadcasters. If you're a hipster who likes National Public Radio, well, you're in luck. Because the NAEB is way more obscure and definitely did public radio before it was cool. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. And hi, I'm Jennifer Waits. And today we're going to talk about uh, some history of non-commercial education broadcasting in America. Really, really public service broadcasting that dates back nearly to the dawn of radio in the United States and, and goes all the way up to the late 1960s to the to the creation, really, of what we now know as public radio. And our guest is Stephanie Sapienza, who is a digital humanities archivist at the University of Maryland. And Stephanie has worked on this massive archive of materials from the National Association of Educational Broadcasters, which was a non-governmental organization, principally of university-affiliated radio stations uh, around the United States that created educational and informational content for, for radio and also exchanged it. And Jennifer, I mean, how did you learn about uh, Stephanie's work, though? That's kind of a fun, quick little story, if you can tell it. Yeah, I, I learned about it because people shared this really cool presentation that she did as part of a virtual conference, and she did it in the style of an old-time radio show. So she kind of brought some of this educational radio content to life in a way that mirrored the style of radio in, in, in say, that period, maybe yeah. like the 1940s. And I thought that was... You know, we've talked a lot on the show to scholars and archivists who really want to bring archival material to the people and and get people interested in collections and using collections. And so I thought that that would make for a really interesting conversation today. Yeah. Stephanie, Stephanie's video really brings uh, brings to the audience a lot of the same kind of skills that are familiar to people who watch uh, YouTube a documentary vloggers that are that are working in sort of an educational and public service realm, you know, t- telling a story to the audience to try to educate them about a topic that they might not know about but would be interested in. I think one of the most interesting things about what Stephanie's bringing to Radio Survivor today is there's definitely like to me when I think about what radio is and has been, I'm sort of uh, I'm always surprised that there's this much of a history to educational radio. You know, I know. I know that there was music on the radio, and I know that there was news on the radio. But to think that also throughout the entire history of radio, which is a hundred years now, that there was um, often an educational uh, component to the to the kinds of radio that people were making, both documentaries as well as um, you know other forms of of radio. Most definitely, I mean, and definitely in my work in college radio history college radio stations were airing lectures from the very beginning. All sorts of college radio stations were doing that. So bringing, you know, bringing stories from the campus to to people, um, you know, especially those early days of AM radio, it, you know, these, the, this news from the campus and, and lectures from the campus were reaching people for hundreds and thousands of miles. Well, Jennifer, uh, let's go ahead and take it to our interview with Stephanie Sapienza. Today on Radio Survivor, our guest is Stephanie Sapienza, who is 
a digital humanities archivist at the Maryland Institute for Technology in the Humanities at University of Maryland. Stephanie, thanks for joining us today to talk about early educational radio. No, thank you. I'm pretty happy to be here. I was so I was excited because I initially saw an unusual presentation that you did for an online conference where you presented material from a collection of educational radio and you did it in an old time radio style. And, and that really piqued my interest in talking to you, not only about the history of educational radio, but also the ways that as archivists, we share that information and bring it to life to other people. Yeah, and I think about this a lot because, you know, academics can start to lose, in my opinion, can lose touch with what the general public finds interesting and finds relevant. Um, and so I think that was a little bit of where I was coming from because the Orphan Film Symposium went virtual this year. Um, and just to give some background, the Orphan Film Symposium has been going on since 1999, and its primary focus is to feature content from both our film and sound heritage, which is fallen between the cracks. So things that weren't um, distributed through a commercial network did not get any kind of attention after their initial life um, and got kind of either shoved in a garage or in a basement or like passed from institution to institution, or they never foresaw the need to keep or even preserve the materials. So they ended up somewhere and became orphans. So the Orphan Film Symposium is about highlighting these kind of um, previously lost collections uh, and giving them new life. And the, the presentations can take different forms, um, but oftentimes it's about finding and investigating a collection, why it ended up where it ended up, and then how they got excavated, how it was preserved, and a little bit about tracking down the information behind the collection. Um, so it's a different depending on what, that's a broad range of people that talk at the Orphan Film Symposium. It's a really great. Um, what are, what are some great. of the sorts of things that, um, what types of films end up in, in the orphan film under that sort of umbrella of orphan films? Yeah, it's, it's, it's all over the place, but it, it can be home movies, um, sponsored films. So um, organizations like uh, corporations like, like Chevrolet or IBM can make sponsored films to either um, to uh, propagate a particular product, not, not a commercial, but actually something to say like, this is how you would use our product. So industrial films, um, educational films, and radio, obviously. Um, uh, alternative, uh, like artists working in the experimental genres, um, and then just all kinds, all manners of what I like to call bastard films, if I'm allowed to say that on this podcast. Yes, you are. Um, but there's, I actually run an offshoot of the Orphan Film Symposium called the Bastard Film Encounter um, that I took it over this past year for the first time. But it's sort of like the things that are too uh, disturbing to even show at Orphans. Yeah. Uh, tell us more. Wow. Tell, tell yeah. us more. We want to hear about this. Yeah. You've I know. Yeah. Definitely. Well, it, the Bastard Film Encounter features materials that, um, you know, archivists ten, tend to find at some point. They encounter them. That's where the word comes from in their collections. And they can gasp and say, why is this here? This is embarrassing. This is racist often. Oh. Um, it's sexist, misogynist. Um, why does this exist? 
um, or it's just pointless and boring and strange. Um, so it can kind of run the gamut. But I have made the joke before that um, because archives, and I don't want to get on a tangent, tend to reflect the sort of, you know, <laughs> the patriarchal forces that are endemic in everything, you, you tend to get archives that are representative of basically the history of white people. And that's yeah. unfortunate uh, as as all hell. But yeah. I think what happens with bastards is it ends up, my joke is that it ends up, I'm trying to be self-effacing and, 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 and aware, ends up being a sort of white guilt forum for like, look at what we produced. Why are we like this? Let's do better. And I, I <laughs> imagine, forward. I imagine Stephanie Sapienza that you're referring to a lot of work that's from like the middle of the 20th century. It's all over the place. There was stuff that was produced um, in, you know, a redneck's backyard <laughs> of them sort of messing. Oh, this is so I don't want to get disturbing on this, but like messing with the corpse of something they brought hunting, wow. some uh, stuff they brought back from a hunting trip. There's and there's this was and this of, was preserved in a in in what kind of uh, well that collection? particular thing. That particular thing was discovered by someone um, where a collector had dropped off a bunch of materials. And so this happens a lot. People get um, a collector will drop off a bunch of stuff, say, I have no room for this or I've pulled out what I want. And it has some very um, some materials in that collection are are interesting uh, as far as like the university's mandate to collect um, you know, evidentiary value, whatnot, their curatorial mission fulfills their curatorial mission. And then they'll come across these bastards, which are just like, what is this? And why is this here? Um, and some of these things just trickle through and so they that, just this, end this up. This would be just collection. like a, a home movie. That was a home movie okay. that I just described. Yeah. There was also, um, you know, at the university of Wisconsin, a friend of mine, uh, came across a video, um, a police video. I, I think it was shot by or for the police of um, the crews that excavated Otis Redding's plane crash. Someone decided to film that. I don't know why, but um, it was, that's just, it, it runs the gamut. There's also just very goofy, ridiculous stuff in there. So, but a lot, anyway. A lot of these sorts of things, I, I've seen similar things at underground type film festivals where, you know, it's weird educational films and home movies. And it's interesting that some of that material ends up, I, I never really thought about that. Who is collecting this material and, and does it ever end up in the official archive? So it is the orphan film symposium. Is that, is that an academic type? Yeah, it's gathering? run by the, it used to be run by the university of South Carolina and now it's run by the New York university's moving image and Ar archiving and preservation program. And Dan Strebel heads that, and he's the founder of the orphan film symposium. So the, um, I love to pitch orphans, so I will forever. But the reason I had brought it up and had, I was giving it as background was because um, this is a community of people who, uh, you know, have needed a little levity, I think, right now because they're they were, had been planning this symposium for months, and then it just got it was it was like a month before that um, the COVID took hold of the country. So they had to move it all online. So those of us, I had already planned to do a virtual presentation because uh, my friend's wedding, actually my friend who's in the orphans radio hour, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, who plays the reenacting, uh, the reenacting uh, video at the end, uh, his wedding was happening. So I was already planning on giving to submitting a virtual presentation. So Dan had contacted me and said, would you be willing to be one of the, since you were already re going to record this, one of the first sort of pre-show entertainment <laughs> 
So um, because I was going to be pre-show entertainment, I didn't want to just do a very dry academic overview because it's already educational radio. So it's just sort of like, okay. But the, also, I think the Orphan Film Symposium has a lot of great, interesting stuff that not a lot of people get to see. And this was a chance for everyone to get to see it. So we actually got so many more eyes on the virtual version of Orphans than they yeah. ever have before. Um, so, yeah, I mean, by, I tried to make it a chance to kind of pitch the collection, pitch the project, um, in, in addition to giving people some levity and a chance to laugh. I've presented about the NAEB so many places in the sort of dry academic way one can. Um, I don't think it's dry, but, you know, if you don't present it the right way, it can come across well, and as dry. We, and we should probably back up a bit and talk about um, you did a presentation about the National Association of Educational Broadcasters, NAEB, because you're part of a, a big initiative working on a collection of material. So maybe briefly describe what this organization is, and then and then we can talk more about what you created to bring it to life. Sure. Um, so the National Association of Educational Broadcasters, or the NAEB, uh, it was basically uh, NPR before NPR. It preceded NPR by, well, it started in 1925 and started um, distributing content nationally around or and after 1949, as the National Educational Radio Network was a, hmm. uh, a distribution network of the NAEB. But originally, when it started, it became um, an advocacy group that started to uh, unify and, and create a national forum for different universities, mostly university stations, uh, some of them, a lot of them Big Ten, who were already producing educational content. Uh, through a university radio station together as a coalition and and advocate together for more spectrum space um, and for kind of just better um, adoption and use of educational radio for um, for education. And that was a big uh, push actually that happened. And I'm not I want to preface this and say that I am not a media I'm not a media studies scholar. So a lot of what I'm telling you is based on or built on, the really good academic work of scholars like Josh Shepard and others who have written about this. Um, so I'm, I'm a scholar mostly of archives. <laughs> so I'm telling you all this. I'm like building on their kind of like primary research work. Uh, but basically, um, there was a mandate for public uh, mandatory compulsory education that started to gain traction in like even the 1910s and 20s. But it became uh, obvious that the ways that we were going to make it available to everyone weren't, uh, the technological means of doing that weren't available to us yet. So radio became the first solution and lasted for quite a long time in that way to start making it so that um, program programming that was educational was made available. That's so interesting. I've never thought about it that way, that it was connected with this idea of compulsory education. Um, yeah. And, and this is, I'm sorry to, to interrupt you. Oh, no, go ahead. I just wanted to say that um, the historian Josh Shepard, who uh, was at Catholic University up until Actually, like today, he's <laughs> he's got a, a new mm. position. He's moving to Colorado, uh, but he writes extensively about this. So I am totally aping his research yeah. right now. Uh, Josh, um, Shepherd, but yeah, friend friend of the show. I think we've had yeah, Josh on yeah. uh, more than once as a guest on Radio yes. Survivor. So we we should link to Josh's previous work if it's if I'm not uh, speaking out of school on the website. Yeah, today. and sure. you know, and and he's been leading up the 
Radio Preservation Task Force project of the Library of Congress. So, right. yeah, um, and he yes, is our lead lead faculty advisor for the project, which I featured in the Orphans Radio Hour. So the you know he what he talks about is just sort of like how distance learning initiatives and compulsory education calls for compulsory education factored into the founding um, the founding of the NAEB and how they kind of coalesced around that to take hold of that um, and make it that make it so that educational radio was one of the means by which that happened and the, and they they were really really well organized and self reflective and very very uh, good at sort of like consistently going back and looking at their practices and making sure that everything was equitable, that things were running well. They had a really good sense of their own self-assessment um, and their self-identity as, as an organization. And we have in the collection a lot of materials, both in paper form and audio form, that document these conferences they would have where they would, they would kind of like reflect thoroughly on the past year, talk about what they had done better, but it wasn't just, you know, patting themselves on the back. They really wanted to strive to do better. They were in the moment. Usually they wanted to balance local coverage of really important issues to communities with national coverage of major events. Um, a lot of that was going on during incredibly important periods in U.S. history, like the Cold War um, and the Civil Rights Era, especially. So they, uh, they were on top of it. In the 60s, they had a whole program called Programs for the Disadvantaged, which was their sort of way of um, doing a very focused started with surveys and then ended up with action, which was, I'm actually doing an exhibit on for the website right now and doing some deeper dives into, but they did a survey of radio stations saying, what uh, content do you have that's not only representative of minority groups, uh, but also is produced by minority groups? And what kind of people do you have employed at your stations who are part of these groups? Basically, how well are we doing in terms of diversity inclusion was basically the theme of it. Um, and the results of that were that they dramatically increased program and were able to lobby for funding to increase not only um, the placement of um, a variety of diverse individuals at stations, but then they, they increased their content in those areas as well throughout the 60s. So you're, you're referencing a website. So maybe uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the collection and the project that you're working on, um, it, it, my understanding is that you're working on a collection of materials that are across a number of different institutions, and you have a grant uh, for this project, Unlocking the Airwaves. So maybe talk a little bit about what that project is. Yeah, so I, um, I had been, to go back just a minute, just to say I was the the project manager for a large-scale project called the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. Uh, that's my reason I moved to D.C. in 2010 was to work on that. Uh, I worked at CPB. And uh, throughout that whole time, we digitized 40,000 hours of content. And CPB was very careful to say, we are not going to choose the content. The stations are going to choose the content because it's our mandate to not make decisions on content. So the stations digitized their own content, but that we were supposed to carve out and designate a portion of that that was important, iconic, national content. And the way we got to that, um, without getting into that, there was a lot that went into that. But we chose the NAEBs in, in its entirety, and they were the, one of the only two um, collections that we funded to get described and digitized that was not from a station. So the University of Maryland holds the entirety of this collection, the audio files. Hmm. So I, I got the whole collection digitized in my previous position. 
And when I came to the University of Maryland, they were basically like, your mandate is to develop digital humanities projects with AV materials, work with the libraries, work with who you'd like, uh, pitch it to us and go. And I immediately thought of this collection because they were just kind of, it was thrust upon them, the libraries. They were like, yes, we have this collection, but it wasn't like they were like, please get this digitized. So it was sort of like now they just have 3,600 hours of digitized content and had no plan to do anything with it um, because there's so many other collections that had uh, that were in their backlog that needed attention before before this. So basically, we tried to get a grant. We got a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities from their Humanities Collections uh, and Reference Resources program to develop this. It took us four tries <laughs> uh, to get funded. Um, so I've been writing this grant and rewriting this grant since 2015. My co-PI is Eric Hoyt, who's at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he and by, runs... And PI, can you just define PI? Sorry, the, he, <laughs> um, he's my uh, the principal investigator, so Got we it. run the project together. And he's very important to the project because he runs Media History Digital Library, which is a very important um, re online resource for documentation about materials related to media. So the history of media as documented through like trade journals and other things. So he's got extensive experience making uh, materials related to audiovisual collections and the history of our, um, you know, the audiovisual cultural heritage made available. So we, um, we represent the two institutions who have, he works with um, the Wisconsin Historical Society, which is on, on the campus of UW-Madison, um, who has all the paper collections. So the two, the two collecting institutions who have the two collections that we've unified virtually as part of this grant into an online resource are the Wisconsin Historical Society. They have all the papers. They were not digitized at all. Um, they had a finding aid just saying this box has program stuff and this box, you know, they just basically had it described it down to like this fold, like the folder, but nothing has been digitized. Um, connecting it with the audio. So the audio um, had been described at the item level um, by the, the special collections staff at the libraries well, at Maryland. Stephanie, so now we had, we had two different collections that we were going to marry together in, in one place so that you could search them together. Stephanie Sapienza, you are the digital humanities archivist at the University of Maryland. And I want to let listeners know that this this project that you're speaking of, and I'm probably going to get something wrong, so please, um, sp you know, Get, uh, correct, correct me if I misspeak. But the project that you're speaking of is that you're you're working on this archive of material that is um, government funded educational radio from from a certain uh, chunk of American history that's basically the the 20th century, which is you know the beginning of radio. Uh, so this is radio that was made at stations, but with government funding that was specifically supposed to be educational. Like in the in a world before national public radio and NPR, this was um, these were this was this was a way to have a national uh, a project to make a radio that 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 had this other purpose, right? To educate, but that's it's such a broad general. Like as I'm describing it now, I'm realizing like nothing I'm saying is very specific. So mm -hmm. like it's um what an what an insane gigantic thing. Uh, how can you, yeah. how can you help us understand it on a more like uh, what is it? Yeah, well, um, so let me just back up and say that it is not actually publicly funded materials. Okay. That's a big important distinction, and I can try and draw that out. But the way that public radio and public broadcasting as we know it today 
became public um, was because of the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967. And so that act formed the CP, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and eventually PBS and NPR. And that's because that was the point at which government funding was going to be allocated for this material. That's why it it happened in 1967. Mm -hmm. So that the, the NAEB was before this and it was not publicly funded. It was funded either by the universities themselves okay. or it was funded by private foundations like the Ford Foundation, the Kellogg Foundation actually did. The Ford Foundation was a major uh, funder of a lot of content, especially in the 50s and 60s. So I, I got I got fooled because the word national uh it was a national project, but it was it was most it was it was not a government project. It was a uh, it was these uh, educational entities and other private uh, funders. Yeah, and it was uh, it was an it was a really interesting model because it was this sort of great um, the the public part of it could be seen as being you know these were public universities, uh, but that's state that's more state funding. Um, less national government funding, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, there was this great, you know, kind of private public partnership that was in, in many senses, very, very successful. Yeah. And tell us a little bit, like, what kind of radio are we talking about? Is it all kinds of radio? Is that also an impossible question to pin yeah, down? What, no. were, what were people teaching people yeah. through the radio? Yeah. So there was, there was all kinds of stuff. You're right. Um, public service reporting of national events, um, Ranging from, you know, the economy, World War II, civil rights movement, um, you know, Americans' view on con communism, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and then there was actually a lot of local content. So local uh, forums that, you know, for example, WDET in Detroit uh, covered a lot of local issues and they had a lot of uh, early uh, content uh, related to African-Americans um, and their, their particular questions and um, motivations and frustrations um, at the time in like the 50s, even before uh, things like the programs for the disadvantaged, you know, boosted the amount of um, diverse content. They were doing that kind of stuff early. So, um, you know, ag even agricultural prices, community events, like covering elections, you know, expanding public educations. And then the, the educational content can be anything from like grade two. There, there's a program called grade two, <laughs> which is just like <laughs> a very dry sort of like, you know, like series of just like this is what uh, water is. It is comprised <laughs> of molecules. What is a molecule? You know. There's science education stuff in there. There's a great program called About Science, um, which is which was pretty big. Um, there's a lot of international content about Europe and uh, actually about China and about Russia. There was a program called People Under Communism, which was funded by the Ford Foundation, is a big project to basically expand Americans' understanding of what it was like to live under communism, what that what that even meant. There was some interesting. Um, there was some interesting back and forth about exactly what the tone should be, and that it should never be um, partisan. It should never be um, attempting to espouse any kind of, um, you know, opinion on communism. That it was just a very impartial educational background on like what what it was, how it functions, mm. um, and what it's like to live under it. So sort of like an, an, an experiment in empathy so that people weren't just maybe demonizing it, which is very obviously hot topic in the 50s. So Stephanie, it's really interesting to me to think about some of these foundations uh, and groups that uh, created and sponsored some of this programming. I was recently listening to some film strip cassettes that I have that were 
produced by companies and there are things like history of America that, you know, are produced by some corporation uh, that was obviously used for educational purposes. And I'm wondering if you know about those intersections between educational radio and film strips. Ooh, film strips. Um, gosh, no, I'm sorry. I do not know anything about the history of film strips as they, as they pertain to radio, but that sounds like fascinating and I would like to know more about it. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking with the orphan film connection, there could be some, uh, and I know Paul might have some insight about that as well. I, I don't have insight. <laughs> no, I, I, specifically around film strips. No. Um, picking up on the question of the, the sort of public education aspect, you know, um, I studied uh, at the University of Illinois and I studied in communication. And so the main hall uh, building where the communication department was, at least at the time that I was there, was actually all wired with microphones uh, mm -hmm. for doing basically classroom of the air going back to the 19, uh, I think at the very least 1930s or 1940s. Cause I know that the NAEB was headquartered in Urbana at, I think at the university of Illinois for a good chunk of that time of the cold war in the 1950s, 1951 to 61 or so. Um, and so we knew that there were microphones still in the lecture hall, still, still plugged in. Um, and until, uh, somewhere in the, uh, nineties, I believe the, um, the radio station, the, the, which is now of course an NPR affiliate, the public radio station at the university of Illinois was in that same building. Right. So the idea was basically that they could, uh, schedule in to record or, or, or in many cases just broadcast live, um, lectures, you know, that were, there were regular university lectures on the air, uh, because it was all sort of contained all in this all in this one building. And so I'm wondering, Stephanie, like how much of this of this content is not necessarily uh, produced, but really just kind of recorded lectures in, in, in classroom kind of stuff like that. You know, that's interesting because we're working I'm working on a, um, a book chapter with um, my co-PI, Eric Hoyt, and one of our great um, project members, uh, Matthew St. John, on this one of what we're, we're going to be covering as part of the chapter, one of these topics, because we are wanting to kind of address the sort of history of educational radio as far as what what's the span of types of content that's in it, and is it all public lectures or not? Is that just like a preconception? Because as we're really digging into this, we're starting to get a sense. We've got a couple people working on honing the metadata, if you um, are aware of what that term means, so that we can do an analysis of the collection as a whole, categorize which things are lectures, and then look at it and say, okay, actually only about 20% of this is lectures. We've got a lot of you know schools of the air content. We've got a lot of dramatic reenact radio series reenactments. We've got a lot of news. We've got um, interview shows. Uh, but yeah, there's, uh, there's a decent amount of def definitely lectures that is definitely in there 20 percent was probably low um the actual final percentage is, is something i am very curious to find out myself i don't think because this is the first time we've done a pass over the metadata like this and done this kind of quantitative analysis no one has determined the sort of percentage you know what i mean it's just sort of like mm -hmm. there's 3600 hours of content so there's been no no attempt to quantify those kind of those numbers yet, but we are actually right now working on answering that question because we're curious about it ourselves. And, and I'm sure a lot of it was affirm was ephemeral, right? I mean, I'm, I'm certain a lot of, right. especially lecture programming would not have been recorded due to cost, uh, you know, in, in the recordings that they principally tape, or do you also have, um, transcription discs, you know, records. We, the entirety of the NERN's materials are, 
uh, from quarter-inch reel-to-reel tape. There were early program transcriptions that were uh, distributed, but the majority of the, the content that was distributed after the NERN was founded, which began in earnest roughly after 1949, there was some. There was some. There was a lot of NEB content produced before 1949, but that's when. Uh, most of the content in our collection begins. It's, 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 I would say the vast majority of it, probably 90% of it is 1950 to 1970. The program transcriptions probably would have been mostly before 1949. Yeah. And so that stuff did not trickle down to Maryland. If it does exist, uh, it was part of a collection that's not, I believe, I could be wrong about this, not part of the NERN, but was produced by the NAEB, if that makes Got sense. It. And remind yeah. us what the NERN is again. Uh, that is the National Educational Radio Network. It's the program distribution arm of the NAEB. Got it. Um, and that that is the collection that was at Maryland, the NERN Connect collection. And I was yeah. I was curious about this time frame too. And do you think is there much material recorded material out there from those very very early days of educational radio? Oh, I'm sure there is. And actually, one of the things that our next um, follow up project to this is aiming to address is. Um, how something like this project can provide an entry point to connecting to other projects and other collections that are on the web and exposing them and, and where those connections lie. For example, where they share creators, subjects, etc., through something called what we call linked data, which is something that is an emerging field that's been attempting to sort of like realize the the potential of the World Wide Web as it's been <laughs> Uh, idealized for many years to be like this connective tissue that allows us to understand things contextually. So like the idea is like, we're going to try and find the other collections that live out there that are, that are existing in either digitized form or not. So even if it's just um, a collection that is described at the collection level and only has a finding aid, there's still a, a ways that we can connect to those collections to make sure that we know that those those collections share what we call authorities, which authorities are things like common creators uh, and subjects and things like that. So people, corporate bodies, like organizations, families, where those things are, are span across different collections. So that's the next step is like basically we start out with those core materials that's sort of described in such a way where it's linked data ready. And then we expand and try and connect to other collections that are that are out there. And the, the idea behind that, too, is, is interesting because we're trying to approach it in such a way where we're not trying to only target collections which are already digitized. We're trying to actually target collections that are also not digitized so that mm -hmm. we can draw, draw attention to them to say, oh, this great collection would be complementary and fill in an early gap that we don't have, but it's not digitized, and then write a grant or try and attract funding to get that digitized so that when then we could connect to it. So that's the idea behind it. I don't know. I don't know how much exists right now. I really hope there is more from the early eras, but uh, we already have some leads um, that I don't have listed in front of me. But we do have a, a notion that there's other content that we just don't have in our collections that's out there. I want to make sure that we spend a little bit of time talking about how you brought this collection to life in your presentation. So um, maybe you could describe what inspired what what you did and what inspired that uh, because you, it's in. It's in the style of an old-time radio show. It's very fun. Yeah. So uh, I, like I said, I was trying to uh, inject some levity into the current moment and give um, audiences a way to understand these materials in a way that's fun and relevant. So you know, I started off with this kind of 
comment about, you know, if you're a hipster who likes national public radio, you know, like the trope of like hipsters liked things that are obscure before they were cool. You know, it's just like, this is very obscure, obscure. And it was <laughs> NPR before NPR. So you can say you like this. You're definitely a hipster. Um, that's how I kind of started it. But I said, I, I decided to do it um, in that tone because I had been listening to so much of this radio and the voice was in my head. And one of the, the chapter I was mentioning that I'm writing with my copy is about um, largely about sort of discourse and how public radio sounded uh, and just sort of like also walks through a little bit of an analysis of like what is public radio voice? You know, what does it sound like? Is it now it's kind of discursive or it's it's more conversational with the outcome of things like or that, you know popularity of this American life and so forth. Yeah. But back in the day, was it, was it ever discursive? Uh, was it, you know, what, what was the tone of it? So as I was and, listening and to a discursive lot of this, means that, like, sounds like the way people talk. Yeah. Okay. Like, you know, like I'm Ira Glass today. Yeah. This <laughs> but now that life. just sounds like Ira Glass. Uh, <laughs> Dog, dogs, you know, um, <laughs> but yeah, that was a Stephen Colbert joke, but anyway, but, um, so I was trying to invoke that voice right. as a sort of comedic, trope, but then also sort of use it as a way to get people's attention and, um, you know, sort of invoke what the collection sounded like in a way. Today, we're going to be talking about the National Association of Educational Broadcasters, or the NAEB. The National Association of Educational Broadcasters. The National Association of Educational Broadcasters. By the National Association of Educational Broadcasters. That was fun. If you're a hipster who likes national public radio, well, you're in luck, because the NAEB is way more obscure and definitely did public radio before it was cool. They've been around since 1925, when they were the Association of College and University Broadcasters, or ACUBs. And what, what, are, some of, uh, what, like, what are some of the unusual items that you've, uh, that you've really enjoyed in the collection, or some of your favorite pieces? Um, I have been really, so I'm a huge fan of like Suds Turkle, um, and those mm-hmm. kind of, um, you know, sort of like off the cuff kind of talk to people on the street, get a sense, like basically stuff rooted in storytelling and everyday life. Um, there's a really great series called, uh, Seeds of Discontent. Um, it was produced, um, by WDET. Uh, so, you know, um, WDET was actually founded in 1948 by the United Auto Workers uh, and had programming about labor concerns um, that was then purchased by Wayne State in like 1952. Uh, so they have a lot of early content um, social, uh, centering around like social issues, race, education. Um, and so the series of discontent featured comment, commentary and interviews from um, African-Americans from the ranks of the middle class on uh, issues of social discontent and race relations. So obviously very, very relevant to the current moment. I've been listening to that series Mm. and finding it really, really compelling because it's just got people off the street talking about what, you know, they're concerned about uh, and what they experience in their communities. Um, And so it's sort of like, yeah, like some kind of like growing awareness that I'm reading a quote, revealing growing awareness, concern and pointed calls for action on the part of the, N-word middle class. <laughs> and This is an issue that comes up a lot. There, that word right. um, comes up a lot, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, so I try not to repeat it, but it's not, it is it's not all the over capital the N- It's not the capital N-word. It's the lowercase no. version of the N-word, which is uh, still no fun to say out loud uh, in 2020. Yeah. 
um, not no fun. The one that ends with O. Oh, yeah. hey, Stephanie Zepians, so I want to I want to let listeners know that you just referenced Studs Terkel, and to me, like Studs Terkel is sort of the the um, a, an earlier generation's version of Ira Glass, where he he used radio in a way that was unique at that time, or at least less pre- prevalent on a national level, where he just talked to people. <laughs> And he interviewed them, and he would have people on that were uh, that ran the gamut of all kinds of people, and would talk to them on the radio in a way that um, really broadened the scope of what was possible on the radio. Like you could just talk to individuals, and then of course, a lot of his work ends up. Um, the reason I even know his name is because of the the musical that they made out of uh, one of his series called Working, which was first a book and then a musical, and then. But uh, yes, yeah, I, 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 I'm wondering. Formally speaking, is there is Studs Terkel in this archive? Was was his programming ever part of this? I mean, he because you right. know he was working contemporaneously with this time period. But I do uh, not think he, if he is, I have not come across him yet. We will have to right. contact our uh, the, the Radio Survivors' future friends at the Studs Terkel archive and, yeah. and get yeah. the get the answers to all these questions. Yeah, that was, yeah. Um, we had working on our shelf when I was a kid, and I remember pulling that off the shelf and just reading people's stories, and, you know, it was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alison Shine Holmes at the Stud Turkle Archive is my dream job, so <laughs> I'm very jealous of her. <laughs> uh, well, well, maybe maybe in a future episode of Ray Survivor, we'll have you both on, and we'll have like a little uh, a virtual panel of the airwaves so that you can... Yeah. You can ask Stephanie, when, for us. so you're, you're talking about some of these things you're finding and that you're writing up some pieces for the website. Um, so is that what you hope that when this material uh, really sparks, uh, the material that you think is of particular interest, you're, you're posting that and getting that out there so that people can access it? Um, how, can, how can people listen to some of these materials or can they yet? Yeah, so um, we're in the beta launch mode right now, which means that we're we're troubleshooting some of the you know searchability and the usefulness of like different aspects of the site and kind of testing it. So it's not publicly available yet, but it's going to be around late October that we launch it. It was supposed to be in conjunction with the Radio Preservation Task Force, which is why we set that timeline, uh, the conference rather. But um, we, uh, the exhibits that I'm referring to are part of uh, the next big. Um, Basically, the beta launch of the site that's up right now just provides the ability to search across and browse both materials at once. Or, sorry, the archives of the paper and the archives of the audio at once. But the addition of, of exhibits are to allow people kind of curated access point entry points uh, to access different parts of the collection. And so what we've done is we've, um, we've created a, a list of 40 themes that are represented in the collection and tried to... Mm pinpoint what's in there by categories like music, literature, um, women's issues, you know, uh, civil rights material, and then basically sent those kind of curated lists, like the entirety of the collection broken up into these kind of 40 categories to a group of scholars and historians that we know through Josh Shepard and the Radio Preservation Task Force. And they've been uh, they're actually their due date is coming up and at the end of the month here to turn in exhibits where they they look at and listen to and observe what what is in the collection that is around a particular topic that they study and then they're going to write a piece you know 300 to 500 words not not a lengthy piece uh, which highlights the materials in the collection that you know, give people just a glimpse to say like this is the music content that's in the collection we've got 
you know, choral music and we've got jazz and blues and we've got choir, choir you know, we got all kinds of stuff uh, from, you know, this era, you know, just sort of like very high level entry points. Um, and that's the goal of the next uh, phase is to get, um, to get people to know where to get into this massive amount of material because they can sure they can know what they want and they can search for terms or they can browse. But unless you kind of know what's in there, it's hard to even think about with such a large corpus of materials where to start. I have to ask the so, worst question is how much, how much material are we talking about in a broad way? That's because obviously yeah. it's a lot. Yeah. 3,600 hours of content and about, well, there's 112 archival boxes, which doesn't probably mean anything <laughs> to the average person. But uh, I think right now there's something, oh God, I'm going to put my foot in my mouth, but there's like the uh, materials, the paper materials are all publicly available now on the Internet Archive. And our website actually dynamically links to and displays the Internet Archive materials within it mm -hmm. so you can see those now and they're a sub collection of the media history digital library which is run by my co-pi so um i think right now there's something like i want to say like five thousand individual yeah. uploads and some of them are one newsletter that's four pages and some of them are a full folder of materials that's 200 pages so it just depends and we should let but listeners know that are just joining us that we're talking about uh, an archive from from the National Association of Educational Broadcasters, and that would be a whole lot of educational radio from from the early and middle part of the 20th century. And our guest, Stephanie Sapienza, is the digital humanities archivist at the University of Maryland working on a project to, um, to make this material, uh, to bring it back, to make it live again, I guess is one way <laughs> to put it, right? Yep. Stephanie, how did you get interested? Because you also, you know, prior to this role at the University of Maryland, you were also working with the American Archive of, of Public Media. Um, so what, what got you interested in, in doing this sort of work around, uh, you know, educational radio and, and public media? Well, um, before I moved to D.C., my... My pri my primary focus was on actually animation and experimental film, artists like films by artists. Hmm. So I had been working in that realm for a long time. I'd been involved with a group called Los Angeles Film Forum. We'd written a big, mm -hmm. similarly a large grant called Alternative Projections, which was about post-war experimental filmmaking in LA. And if I'm going to be honest, after doing that for so long, I really loved these films. I loved working with artists. Um, I was getting, I was kind of feeling like I just wanted to do something a little more civically important or, <laughs> you know, something with a little bit more sort of historic, you know, evidentiary value and less sort of straight arts. Um, and I had, I felt I had contributed very heavily in that area already and for a long time. And I really wanted to pivot to something different. I'm a huge, I'm a huge, massive fan of public radio specifically. Um, I've always been an NPR maniac. All my podcast uh, subscriptions are to public radio shows. Um, so it was all actually I had tweeted about in a year and a half before I got the job. I tweeted that when I first started hearing about the American Archive, that my dream job was to work at the American Archive specifically because I wanted to work with public radio collections. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, um, this kind of stuff is I feel that radio has a very um, intimate soothing appeal to my nature. I worked in documentaries for ten, for seven years before I went back to graduate school at UCLA for film archiving. So, um, you know, 
for me, radio documentaries are heads and tails above the current documentary trend that's becoming mm. kind of, <laughs> in my opinion, obnoxious. Um, anyone and everyone is making them and they all sound and look alike. People who are interviewed for them know exactly the, the, the beats they're supposed to hit and how they're supposed to sound. And they end up just kind of talking about nothing. Half oh, the time. You, you mean, and I you mean the ones that try to make a narrative out of all their, out of all their, uh, everyone, all their subjects rather than actually trying to construct a narrative themselves. Is that what you yes. mean? Yes. And, and, and <laughs> I every share single, the criticism. Yeah. I, I mean, every single small subject is like made, made hugely important. It's it's inflated. Mm-hmm. Um, actual craft and and actually like shaping a, a story out of a, a documentary is such a rare thing anymore. Yeah. Uh, so I tend to go towards radio because I think the people working in radio are just doing such a better job at getting a, a sense of like what real people sound like and what real people's lives are like and actually storytelling. And why um, do you think why do you think that is that? It's interesting, you know, you obviously have had such a passion for film. Why do you think it is that radio has this advantage? Yeah, over, or the over people this in radio- visual medium, you know, over, yeah. over television, basically. I mean, or, Yeah, or I film. think, uh, you know, people don't um, vamp for the camera. They don't, yeah. they're less self-conscious. They can let their guard down a little bit. Um, they know that radio is more intimate, so they are more intimate. That's my theory. I haven't done mm. any studies on this or anything like that, but I think that, People know the radio medium is about the voice, and so they will be a little bit more candid, a little bit more natural, and a little bit more relaxed in yeah. an interview it's, well, or a conversation with it's, someone. It's like turning off your camera during a Zoom meeting so that you can actually focus on what people are saying, if I can use yeah. it, if I can make a metaphor out of and, our current moment. Well, yeah, and that makes me wonder if, um, if people are doing more radio interviews over Zoom with the camera on, do you think that's going to change huh. things? <laughs> Maybe. Well, um, you know, yeah, I, it's so funny that we got off on this topic, but I, I'm going to, I was going to save this for later, but I've just recently noticed that I think that there's a new, that the new zoomification of all of uh, the late night talk shows is actually having a really positive impact on their ability to sort of calm down and come down to a level that was more of a radio uh, tone, right? The, that the tone of current late night interviews is much more like a radio interview than it was before COVID shut down their audiences and it was always um, performative, right? And it's a really interesting moment where people like Stephen Colbert, who had to always keep things light and happy and jokey, can actually have an interview with Killer Mike, the one I just watched recently, which the tone of it can stay serious for so much longer you know, so their cam- my point is their cameras are on, but it's almost because the audience is missing. It's 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 almost like if TV if TV was done more in the world of radio, which is a calmer, cooler studio with where people don't worry as much about how their hair looks, right? Which is another uh, COVID moment, right? Where people are a little less concerned about their hairstyle when they're talking now, um, because we all look awful. Um, that, that there's the coolness, right? We, this came up years ago on Radio Survivor that, that, you know, TV has a hot energy and radio has a cool energy. And I think the mm. cool energy sort of um, uh, coming to the fore more these days just because uh, 
because things are being done more of in a YouTube style. It's it's crazy. Yeah. It's it's a we're in the middle of it, right? Where it's yeah, uh, it's not. That's gonna be yeah. That's gonna provide some great fodder for academics of the future to look back <laughs> at this moment and notice a real shift. Um, but yeah, right. I think I, that's we, a really interesting observation. I, we could we could go back very quickly, right? It could all be erased in a minute. So Stephanie, as as oh, a documentarist, as somebody as somebody who's a documentarist, and now you're surveying both you know, the history to some extent of educational radio and, and you, you've been involved in the, in the history of public radio. And of course you're listening to, to radio now in a, and, and you sort of compared and contrasted a little bit, the difference, you know, at least in the documentary form between visual film based uh, documentary and, and auditory documentary. And you sort of yeah. mentioned how, you know, the intimacy there are, you, are is, is that, is that both a factor or are they separate factors of how the documentarist, the producer approaches their subject matter and how they construct their narratives? Or is it more about how their subjects behave in, in front of a microphone rather than in front of a camera? Right. Because there's gotta be something about, you know, I mean, you know, obviously the, the, the filmmaker or, or the documentarist's influence in how they approach it as well. Right. Does that make sense as a question? Yes, I think. Well, so I wanted to say that I um, I've been watching documentaries all week um, by African-American um, filmmakers. And so the first one that I watched, I think I can say it because it's in the name of the title is I Am Not Your Negro, yeah. which features James Baldwin's work. Uh, primarily the entire thing is uh, Samuel L. Jackson reading from his writings and inter interspersed with clips, archival footage. And that's my dream documentary right there yeah. because there are no talking heads <laughs> and it focuses on the archival content as the centerpiece of it. Yeah. Um, contrast that directly with the documentary I watched the next night, which was 13th. I just watched uh, that last night. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Netflix um, yeah, Eva DuVernay. So it's um, a fantastic documentary, but more traditional in the sense that its centerpiece are the talking heads, which are providing this kind of structure in between uh, a lot of packed, dense, really well-researched material. So you've got these very different styles contrasted side by side. I'm going to say I like I personally prefer uh, the James Baldwin piece mm -hmm. that I'm not your Negro, but, um, but I, Ava DuVernay's doc was so informative. And I, I mean, I kind of wanted to rage vomit afterwards, but you know, we're all there yeah. right now, but well, like, it's, and, so I guess I'm saying like, I don't know if they've structured that around the people themselves or the subject matter and then found people to serve the subject matter. But then other, yeah. it depends on this. It depends on the subject. Sometimes it is the person themselves. And so the tone of the piece and the way that they decide to, record and what questions they ask, uh, are determined by yeah. the person. And then other times it serves another purpose. Like it serves the contact. Like if you watched, uh, the Nina Simone documentary, what happened Miss Simone? Um, that's another kind of traditional piece, uh, sorry, traditional sort of expository approach towards, um, that I'm, right. that's a and you're talking about, topic. you're talking about like a, you know, a lot of talking heads is the way I think it's been put where, where the, where the documentary will interview, numerous experts and, and those people's uh, head and shoulders telling you the story is how the whole documentary is structured. Yeah. And I mean, I, so I, and I actually, it's funny, I did a, um, a whole, um, a workshop on this as part of our African American digital humanities initiative, uh, on movement and the body. And mm. basically 
we talked about different forms of storytelling, visual storytelling, including experimental film narrative and different ways that black filmmakers who have explored movement in the body have done, have, have done visual storytelling. And I broke down all the different uh, ways that people approach documentary. Neat. And so you've got, for example, like Chris Rock with big hair. He's in the documentary, kind of like Morgan Spurlock, right? Where he's in it is talking it, to it everybody. Uh, sorry, yeah, good hair. Bad hair is this uh, little book I have over on the shelf here. Yeah. So I conflated them in my head. It's okay. uh, but yeah, so it's like, you know, there there are different styles. And then there's the sort of like coop dreams, which is considered the sort of like uh, more like cinema verite. Uh, yeah. So there's like expository, participatory, and then the sort of observatory where you're just like you're watching your subjects and sort of letting the story unfold. And so it kind of depends on what kind of approach you're taking. But I think those ones that are in that kind of expository mode are the what I'm calling the more traditional standard docs where it's just like talking head, archival footage, man on the street talking, you know, it's a sort of staggered. And to do that well anymore is I think where we start to get the like eye rolling docs um, because some people are doing it well, like Ava DuVernay did it really well, but some people are just, right. they're it's just, they're copying. <laughs> yeah. They're just copying the tropes and the people who they're interviewing know how they're supposed right. to sound. Yeah. So they copy, they copy you know, that sound. I want to bring us back to radio here because I, I wonder, because in radio, you can't, it's hard to get away in, in at least in a traditional radio documentary without a narrator, without a host of some sort, which is something which in documentary you can do, right? Because you can rely on the visual uh, and, and, and the, and the editing techniques that you, you can kind of pull off in, in that medium. And it seems that in radio, you almost always need to have the guide. I mean, I'm certain there are Not experimental <laughs> radio documentaries. Well, right. right but I, but that's I, the I form. The form is that we, have, at, that we do have it 99.9% right. .9 of the time. Yeah, I'm sure there are experimental radio documentaries do that, that do well and, and without that. But Yeah, I, I have and, a memory right now of a time that Jay Rosen on Twitter uh, linked to a story that was uh, during the Summer Olympics, I believe, of uh, 2016, that was the story of a, a boxer, a woman boxer from the United States who was training for the Olympics and it was on All Things Considered, and he the tweet was, am I dreaming? Because the entire seven-minute piece on All Things Considered was done without the narrator. It was, a, it was, right. a, it was, a, it was done with this beautiful um, linking and, and fading between all of the actualities. So the voice of the, of the Olympian, the voice of the woman training to be a boxer in the Olympics and her dreams uh, was the only narration. And yeah, it was it was exemplary, right? That's I mean, it, your question is valid because that was well, one out of only <laughs> out of everything that they've ever aired on All Things Considered. It's well, very yeah, rare and, for there to be no and, narrative. And seven you, minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what do you think, Stephanie? Is um, do you find there's a diversity of styles of audio documentary? You know, that's interesting because I, you know, I've been meaning to listen more to, for example, the. Um, Oh my God, what are they called? The awards that happen each year for audio docs. Um, they're podcasts. Yeah, Third Coast. Thank you. Uh, to see if I'm kind of like in a bubble of what I listen to, which yeah. I tend to like a little bit more of the sort of the stud circle approach where it's just sort of like it's, or maybe this American life where it's just sort of like, I'm introducing a topic. Here's a, an, a, a casual conversation with someone. Here's a story. Here's a, you know interview with someone on the street. I'm a little bit more naturalistic, but I don't know if that's just me kind of going towards what I like. Um, if I were to kind of back out, I would say that, yes, 
you're correct that ha- not having a host um, in the world of radio docs is a little bit more difficult. And then I guess the, the categories, like, for example, in the NAEB that fit that are the lectures, actually, uh, the mm. recorded lectures. And, um, you know, we've got like Howard's in talking as we see it, Vietnam 68, um, mm. giving a you know, giving a lecture on sort of like where we where we're at with the Vietnam War, you know, that kind of thing. That's just that's just that there's no host. It's not really, it's not really a documentary. So it's a question, it's a question of just like what defines a documentary in the radio world. Um, and if that genre becomes something different, um, or whether all nonfiction radio is in a sense documentary. Yeah. This could be a whole other episode. You know, it's interesting that, um, that film theory is that we can talk so, so extensively about all the different sorts of documentaries and film. And, and we're struggling a bit with that when we talk about radio, even though radio has existed longer, uh, you know, than television. And, um, that's, uh, maybe that's actually like, you'd think you've just spurned my next research project. (laughs) (laughs) Like now I want to develop like a taxonomy or a, you know, like a tech, yeah, taxonomy of genres and subgenres of like radio documentaries. Well, I think this is this is important work that 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 you've been working on um, because I think that much of uh, contemporary person's perception of public radio or or shall we say public service radio to sort of expand the definition and take it away from its necessarily its funding roots is really so bound up with national public radio. Um, which is great in many ways, but also, um, you know, constrained in a lot of ways. And, you know, we hear, of course, at Radio Survivor and, of course, you know, talk a lot about community radio and college yeah. radio as well as these, as these parallel structures, something which, of course, many of our listeners are familiar with, and especially because many of them are listening on community and college radio stations. And, and but yet I think this history, you know, and, and especially the archives of the educational broadcasters pre NPR, that's really rich stuff and really important to, uh, to come to light that there was that there was a conception of what public service radio could be and should be prior to it being nationalized really uh, you know with with NPR it, especially given the context that the United States was an outlier in terms of the western nations at the very least of not having uh, a government sponsored radio service or broadcaster of any sort or any apparatus really for funding public service broadcasting of any sort uh you know it's sort of in some ways distinctly american that it would grow up as a sort of uh, yeah. a parallel uh, NGO, if you will, um, you know, and and it's it's and yet it's it's hard to research. It's hard to know, um, and in much of the way we know these things are through those artifacts, uh, which which of course now much of which have been digitized and and preserved. So I think, you know, it, it really helps to add to the to this to this tapestry that helps expand our view of what, you know. What what our views have been of radio in the United States through the decades, whether it's the the school schools of the airways, along with you know the, the helping to educate people about what life under communism is, you know in in Russia in the in the uh, during the Cold War, um, things that maybe uh, people never would have considered kind of mm-hmm. existed at the time. Um, you know I don't know is there to kind of wrap up is there any you know, and again, asking you this, I realize there's so many artifacts; it's hard to to to, to characterize. But but one of the things that that you 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 mentioned early on was how 
the National Association of Educational Broadcasters was active in trying to understand its audience and understand its role and its public service, right? And that there seemed to be a feedback loop, right? Is you know, in trying to be to to assess what they were doing. Is that is that correct? Right? I picked that up. Yeah, yeah. So, and I mean, so you know, uh, after ni- like 1949 or so, when the tape network really picked up, uh, that's when the uh, the NAEB started really going forth with producing its own original content. And I think that was the point at which it's like, okay, this isn't just us kind of collecting and sort of passively collecting what these different universities are choosing to do. This is us deciding, you know, what is, um, what's an NAEB program, you know, like what's important. It sort of was the beginning of the model that eventually became, you know, and I, what I, before I sort of fully answer that, I just want to say that I, to answer something you said earlier, I do think that a model of the NAEB exists in the sense of when you say um, NPR even, for example, I kind of, and I'm sure you know this, I'm not, but like, it's like NPR is one of many. There's PRX, you know, PRI, American Public Media, and then there's the stuff that the local stations are still producing themselves. Yeah. So like a local, like, like WNYC is like a whole, is a whole brand of, of radio, public radio that's of its own, which, you know, just one station. Yeah, so you've you've already got this kind of mix of the local and the mm-hmm. national existing already, where you've got stations that have you know they have morning edition every day, uh, every morning, and they have all things considered at night. They have This American Life, of course, but then in the middle they have all kinds of local material. So you've you kind of still got it a little bit the way that it was set up originally, except for that the national component is more formalized. It's government funded. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's vastly more developed. So I think that model actually did kind of persist to today. But the the way that the NAEB like developed became kind of like it basically funneled it directly into the Public Broadcasting Act and eventually the uh, the formation of CPB, NPR, and PBS. But also one of the factors that led into that act was that commercial programming was becoming so prevalent and viable and entertaining and so people were starting to think about like that 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 public broadcasting needed to have this great balance between entertainment value and educational value and it was striving to be this this mix of both mm-hmm. and so they but they, the, what was happening was that some of the um the stations that were part of the NAEB network were starting to uh pr- they were starting to air some of that commercial con- co- content because they knew viewers liked it and they wanted to hear it so in order to became to remain competitive they wanted to have an oversight organization like CPB be able to kind of like balance or control, not control, but be able to guide uh, the fact that we wanted to have that balance, like may- basically make that balance uh, a reality. I just found the fact that, that you know, the, the evidence of this engagement in trying to uh, really assess needs of its audience, you know, is, is an important fact to kind of highlight uh, since that's, you know, uh, certainly local public radio affiliates do that to this day to varying degrees of success or failure. And it's all often, you know, your apparatus in influences what you what you measure. But, um, you know, I guess what I what I was sort of taking away from it, and you can tell me if my perception was true, is that, you know, it seemed as though, you know, audience size wasn't the only factor ratings 
such as they might have been at the time, uh, much more primitive than now, uh, were less of a factor than, than again, highlighting, you know, true educational, informational needs. Is that perception at all on, on target? I think it, they sort of developed in tandem to one another because, mm-hmm. because of the, the mandates of early educational broadcasting were linked to and developed alongside things like, um, like compulsory education and the development of, like, for example, like communications divisions at universities started to become linked to and involved with the productions of, of materials. So we've got this kind of like tensions that happened along the entire way where that's what kind of like always was the theme was just these this desire to be kind of informative educational impartial well-researched with uh increasing audience desire to have some kind of um entertainment value or some uh, material that was more relevant to them that started in earnest i would say around the mid to late 50s and then kind of grew exponentially from there uh but the you know the the um Jeffersonian Heritage was the other big series produced by that early Ford Foundation grant that also funded people under communism. And it starred Claude Rains uh, and a couple other people doing dramatic reenactments Hmm. based on uh, Thomas Jefferson's life. So it was like an early attempt to create educational broadcasting that was also commercially appealing and entertaining. So that started, it started early and then just kind of grew. Kind of very PBS-ish in a way. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and it, cool. I mean, it's very similar to things I remember seeing in school that were, yeah, possibly PBS versions of that, that they would show to students in school to bring right. history to life with, you know, talented actors on the screen. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was trying to do with the Orphans Radio Hour, <laughs> was bringing radio to life with, yeah. you know, a sort of like funny kind of uh, performative uh, means of getting at the materials that was still, you know, educational. Well, uh, yeah, job well done on that. I was, I thought it was really entertaining. And, and I mean, I'm sure if you say educational radio to the vast majority of people, they would think that it is something that is perhaps not all that interesting and dry. And um, I think you've definitely changed, perhaps changed uh, the perception of that if, if some of those folks were listening today. Good. I'm glad. Well, uh, Stephanie Sapienza, you're the digital humanities archivist at the University of Maryland. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Thank you very much. I had a great time. I'm totally going to take... Oh, sorry, because um, I'm not really done. I just wanted to save some things for the podcast version, because I'm still... I love, I'm st- I love that we're having more conversations on the show that are about the intersections between film oh, yeah. and radio. I think I think that's really interesting, and... Well, Your background in experimental film is super interesting to me, too. I'm, I just wanted to name drop a few of my favorite. So do you listen to the Kitchen Sisters at all, their podcast? Oh, uh, yeah. I right. love. So, yeah. so there's there's a very narrator-less. Uh, right. There is no narrator. It's an established form. You know, there's a very Kitchen Sisters-like. You know, Paul, have you listened to the Kitchen Sisters? Not in a long time, yeah, to be honest. But they, they, you know, their podcast, and what's cool about their podcast, if I understand it correctly, is they were they were independent public radio producers who made documentaries. Uh, I think a lot of it in the eighties and nineties, if uh, if I'm not you know making stuff up. And their podcast sort of brings back that work uh, to this new audience. It's a part of the Radiotopia network, right, where Roman Mars sort of um, established 
a documentary style for podcast, uh, you know, that, um, uh, you know, his, his, uh, that's the other sort of, um, I mean, he's very this American lifey in the way that he structures his, his shows, but he's also borrowing a lot from, from the, the radio lab E version of documentary radio work, right? Where there's a little bit more of a looseness to how many kinds of sounds you can use at once. You know, this American mm-hmm. life is a, is a two sound at once maximum form and radio lab is like a 20 sound at once form sometimes. Um, but uh, the Kitchen Sisters, right? They mix they mix a lot of this documentary sound together, so that it's blended. It tells a story. You know where you are. You know who's well. Okay, you know where you are. You know who's talking. But the narrator doesn't tell you where you are, nor does the narrator tell you who's talking. So you get this. Mm. You got an opportunity to sort of hear things in a more open. Um, I just recommend the Kitchen Sisters for everybody. The other day, I had gone on a. Um, sort of intense I hate all podcasts uh fast or very personal <laughs> rant ranted only to my family how much I couldn't stand anything and then I listened to a Kitchen Sisters podcast and it really um it reminded me that I love sound and I love radio and it was just I'm getting tired of listening to certain people talking to microphones together right that's what podcasts had become in a, oh my God. in a moment yeah. but you know there's there's so many other ways to do it i also wanted to name drop a former uh pal of mine that i met at pacifica radio named addy gevins have you ever heard about the work of yeah. addy or have you met addy yeah i worked a little bit with uh addy when i was at cpb yep good well then you could tell me more but i think about addy's uh documentary a chicken ain't nothing but a bird that i believe she was producing at pacifica radio back in the days where they did that kind of work and uh that's a real um that's a real unique you know if you're going to make a list of documentary radio styles i think addy sort of has a contribution right to that um like i can't i'm trying to wrap my head around what i know about her work because it it sometimes has a narrator but it's so loose you might not know where that narrator is coming from and their voice is sort of equal to some other voices i remember she would use a lot of uh footage from pacifica radio shows um that that were that were pulled way out of context and you just hear a like a like a soundbite out of what had obviously been a much longer uh radio interview and these things would all flow together i mean in a chicken ain't nothing but a bird addy's radio documentary it's um it's all very lighthearted and it's about chickens and it's um it's very kitchen sisters as well Thanks again to Jennifer Waits for producing today's episode, this week's episode, and our guest, Stephanie Sapienza. Thank you so much for joining us for the full hour. Uh, You've been listening to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. You can check us out online at radiosurvivor.com, where we'll have links in the show notes of today's episode. This is episode number 252. You can subscribe to Radio Survivor wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Radio Survivor is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more, you can go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. On behalf of Paul Reismandel and Jennifer Waits, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you for listening.